0: Hi, thank you for joining us on one of the most comprehensive podcasts devoted exclusively to family offices, Family Office World. I'm your host, Ron Diamond, Chairman and CEO of Diamond Wealth. We represent 100 single family offices ranging in size from $250 million to $30 billion. I've been the keynote speaker at dozens of family office conferences around the globe and have spoken at over 150 family office conferences in the past five years. I'm in the process of writing a book on family offices and have consulted with dozens of firms who want to work with family offices, including banks, accounting firms, law firms, philanthropies, and various service providers who want to know what it takes to get in the door and then add value to the family office community. I serve on the board at Stanford University and teach courses in their graduate business school, engineering school, and entrepreneurship programs. I chair the Chicago chapter of Tiger 21, the investment group for enhanced results with 750 members worldwide, representing assets in excess of $75 billion. And I serve as the chairman of the advisory board for four privately held companies, as well as serving on the advisory board for six public and privately held companies. Family office world takes you deep into the inner workings of family offices. Each episode, will have a different expert who works closely with family offices. Our goal is twofold, one, help family offices become more institutionalized and connect with each other directly throughout the country. And two, help service providers navigate the best way to add value and ultimately have family offices as clients. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I'm thrilled today to have with us Michael Steep. Uh, Michael is a senior global executive specializing in operational excellence, innovation, leadership, business development, and sales. In January of 2017, he left Xerox Park as senior vice president and founded Stanford University's newest corporate affiliate program at the School of Engineering. He now serves Stanford University as executive director for a new center on disruptive technologies in digital cities. He is also serving as an adjunct professor of engineering at the school. Throughout his career as an operating executive, he has successfully built, managed, and transformed international operations and organizations by leveraging the power of emerging technologies to deliver fully integrated, scalable, and practical approaches to innovation. I'm thrilled to have you, and I also am happy to say that Michael is a friend. Michael, first, welcome, and thank you very much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you very much, Ron. It's a pleasure.
0: It's fascinating, because I am not a tech person at all. And you're at the epicenter of this. So we're dealing. I deal with family offices, and some of the family offices are very sophisticated, and some not so much. So I think your input is going to be extremely valuable because a lot of people want to know what's happening, where are things going, what's the trend, we're, we, you know, with technology, and technology has been so disruptive. So the first question I have for you is, what is disruptive technology, and how will it create opportunity for early stage investing?
1: Well, our definition of disruptive technology is that it is a technology which changes the whole economics of a business model for either an industry or a company. So probably the best example of that uh, for your audience is the Apple iPhone, where upon its introduction in 2007, the king of cell phone technology was Nokia. And by the time the iPhone uh, started its ride, Apple uh, literally crushed Nokia in the process by developing an entirely new approach to how cell phones are being used as entertainment devices and social media. It's pretty astounding, Ron, because when you look at the charts for revenue growth, there was an article published by Forbes in 2007 asking, is anyone going to challenge the Nokia cell phone king? And that very same year that iPhone was introduced, The revenue decline at Nokia just was precipitous, Uh, and over the course of a number of years and after the Microsoft acquisition, the company essentially disappeared uh, from uh, the radar screen. And Apple, of course, everyone knows what happened there. So disruptive technology, when it fundamentally changes the economics and financials of a business model, is an extremely powerful opportunity for investors to make money.
0: Very interesting, and I did not realize that about Nokia. Um, You had mentioned that there is, in your opinion, a crisis in innovation among large corporations that's contributing to the loss of their ability to innovate. What is the, in your opinion, what's the problem?
1: Well, it's multifaceted. Uh, First of all, um, the amount of R&D that is being invested in what I call at-risk technology development. In other words, general scientific work that produces new innovations has plummeted over the last 10 years. So less than 10% of the total R&D budget of most corporations is now spent on general science and development. It's a very, very small percentage of the total. The rest of the budget is applied directly to incremental innovation to to preserve revenue and earnings growth. So you can understand that from a CEO's point of view, that that's important. And at the same time, if you look at the total R&D spend worldwide, It was just over $2 trillion, Ron, and only 10% of that can be attributed to general R&D that is, for scientific purposes, what we would call innovation or disruptive technology. So only $200 billion worldwide. At the same time, over the last 10 years, over $300 billion has been invested in disruptive technology through venture opportunities uh, for early-stage investors, uh, government, and commercial labs. And that number continues to increase at double digit growth. So, unbeknownst to the CEO in the corporation, his technology and his ability to innovate is in decline relative to what is happening outside of the company in places that they simply don't go in Silicon Valley and in China and other areas around the world where the venture world is essentially financing the disruption uh, that is causing a sea change in the way we think about innovation. So that's what's causing really the crisis innovation among CEOs.
0: It's really interesting, and you know a lot of the families that we work with, you know, they understand they don't understand the technology, how how quickly it's happening and how it's going to impact their business. Um, many of the listeners um, and many of the family offices that I work with want to know with technology, how do you make money from it. So is there one area of disruptive technology that we should focus on? for investing in your opinion?
1: Well, I think that there's been a lot of uh, hubbub around robotics as an example of that, but it's really what is happening with technology is convergence into platforms. So for example, when you take a, a really low cost sensor capability and you combine it to create robotic skin, and then you use artificial intelligence to allow the robot to learn on its own how to navigate without being told or given instructions. Now that fundamentally changes the value proposition. So I'm going to say that the way that you think about investing in technology is in value proposition. And the rule that we use is the rule of 10. There has to be at least a 10 times increase in the, either the efficiency of the feature set that's being introduced or in the operating cost reduction. So as an example, the iPhone was really a fully systems integrated computer that incorporated a whole series of different components. But the way that it was put together and converged created the new value proposition to make it possible to play music to entertain to be able to store and process information very very quickly uh, and created the value proposition for apple and we saw what happened with that curve apple had historic increases in revenue that just continued to surpass any other previous technology company for a long long period of time and in fact ron we used to joke that in one quarter cash Ah, uh, generation from Apple would be enough to buy Microsoft and literally put Windows out of business. It's amazing. You know th- there's so much that's
0: happening, and you're you're at Stanford, you're kind of at the epicenter. I- is there a general principle to understand that can guide how we look at technology to increase the chances of picking a winner for investing?
1: Yes, there's a framework that we use, and it's called the quantum framework. and I know it sounds like a very fancy term, but essentially what it means is, there are five components that, when they are combined, offer that 10 to 1 advantage that we were talking about earlier. So as an example of that, when you take um, computing power and increase that substantially, and then you combine it with unlimited storage, and then with artificial intelligence, algorithms that can find a needle in a haystack, and so forth, when you combine those components, you don't just get a factor of five, you get an exponential factor. That drives a whole new type of platform. Once again, you know, if we think about the iPhone in, in that respect, that's what that does. The cloud storage capability iPhone is what makes it powerful enough, you know, for friends and family to be able to store their photos or to share things with each other. And the processing power um, and ability of the phone to handle that kind of data is really what enables the device to deliver its value proposition. But that's now happening across the board. You know, we have uh, as an example of that, a really low-cost sensor that has been put into the equivalent of skin. This is the robotic skin that I alluded to earlier. That when you um, you combine that with artificial intelligence and storage, all of a sudden, a robot can learn on its own how to assemble a part, how to harvest a grape, for example, an egg, or perform a medical procedure without being instructed. Now, that's a major breakthrough where um, you're going to have unintended consequences an opportunity to make a great deal of money off of the investment. Got it. So, you know, I'm part
0: of the Stanford Disruptive Technology program, and I think it's and it's been fantastic, and you've done a terrific job. But I guess the question I have is, if you look back, why did you form the program in the first place? And what are you learning
1: from the experience? Well, I, you know, because I had a role both at Microsoft and then was also uh, working with customers at Park at earlier stage of technology development. Microsoft, of course, was off-the-shelf software and services. I had a chance to really engage with over 250 corporations worldwide and engage from the point of view of having serious discussions with the CTO and CEOs of those companies. And that's when I began to see that a lot of the corporations simply are unaware of technology because they don't know how to connect into the disruptive technology world. We didn't realize until recently how that occurred. In other words, the investment shift between the the three hundred billion dollars that's being invested annually in disruptive technology. But now we know that the reason that this is all occurring is because there's this huge gap in understanding and being aware. So what I wanted to do with the program was to help bridge that gap. Normally Stanford spins technology off in the form of startup. What we wanted to do is to change that formula and instead take the technology, wrap it around the business model, and then make it possible for an existing company, one of our 30 corporations that are part of the program, to monetize that for future revenue and growth. So I wanted to tackle the innovation problem head on um, with the program. And that was the reason why I started.
0: Got it. And if you could just mention maybe a couple of companies that are involved in the, in the program, because obviously these are, you know, as big and...
1: Yes, well, they're, they, they're quite a range. Uh, Cinewa, which is a startup company in, on the entertainment space, uh, which was founded by uh, the former executive that uh, sold uh, DirecTV to uh, AT&T, all the way up to Microsoft and Amazon, which are at the uh, top of the spectrum. Uh, we also have Cushman Wakefield, which is one of the largest real estate companies in, in the United States. JLL, uh, Real Estate Middle East, but we also have Bechtel Construction, we have uh, Daikin, which is an HVAC Japanese company, and so forth. Our goal has been to pick one major player, a representative that's a leader in an industry, uh, so that they can essentially help us understand how to take this technology and build a path to monetization with it. That's not the normal course for most academics, Ron. Most academics are very uh, haphazard in their approach to the market. Um, They develop concepts that they enjoy working on, not necessarily that are market driven. And so by having this kind of a program, it makes it possible to have a microcosm of the world available to them to test their technologies and see how real they are, and also get real time reaction from the markets as a result of that.
0: So is is it playing offense more or defense for these companies?
1: Well, uh, clearly, these companies are 100% in defense mode, I'm afraid to say. And so uh, anything you can do to address the problem with the awareness issues and then also help them acquire knowledge about where this technology is and how to acquire it, then you begin to hack away at the problem, the crisis of innovation. You know, here's some interesting numbers for you. We we finished the survey with 400 CEOs of various companies about innovation. Of course, everybody says it's super important, but did you know that 75% of the CEOs who responded to our survey said that they are failing at innovation? And that in the R&D spend that they do, 95% say they fail in new initiatives in R&D. That's an extraordinary number. Uh, if you think about it, the failure rate for venture is around 90%, but you have big winners in that small percentage that succeed. But in corporate land, a 95% failure rate, that's basically saying that uh, a risk averse corporate environment is, you know, is failing at a higher rate than it is in the venture world. It's an extraordinary uh, piece of information.
0: And is that partly because just the technology is changing so fast?
1: Yes. There's a, something I call the uh, explosion in the curve, and uh, you know, I've been in tech for 30 years as an operating executive. And I have never seen this kind of explosion in technology innovation worldwide for disruptive innovation. It's just extraordinary. It's moving at such a rate that we can't keep up with it. And in fact, I think it's it's sort of like Pandora's box. Everything is out of the box. We cannot put it back in. And so uh, you know, we either have to figure out a way to cope with it or find a, a different approach to how we do innovation inside of corporations, maybe both. It's just impossible to keep up with it. Right, so the,
0: the change that's happening, is that, Ha- is that happening mostly over the last two to three years, five
1: years, 10 years? Give me a sense as far as... The last, last 10 years, the real ticker was right after the Great Recession. You know, There was a major downturn also in Silicon Valley. Of course, people never uh, say that that actually happens, but there was a downturn. And in fact, housing prices did drop. Um, but the recovery was phenomenal in terms of uh, what has happened. I have a little chart. It's called the you know, the, explos- the explosion on valuation chart. And essentially what it does is it shows a picture of the valley in 2005 where there were fewer than 10 uh, major unicorns um, in the Bay Area. And then you look at it the last year and it's 200. So the explosion in valuation is attributable to that chart where the explosion in technology development um, has occurred. And if you think about the investment dollar level, the $300 billion is a record number. Um, this year, but it's been growing at an annual rate of about ten percent. So that money that's being invested um, at, in at-risk disruptive technology is what's driving the huge revolution, along with the globalization of information.
0: You I mean, your job must be fascinating. I, you know every day's got to be a different day for you.
1: It's a different day for me, that's for sure. and um but you know I'm uh, having been an operating executive, I like to be practical about things. If I can't see a monetization path, I kind of lose interest in it. Right now, I, I've heard
0: you speak. You know, you mentioned that you talk to over, I think, it's roughly six thousand executives a year through, you know, roughly twenty keynotes covering um, literally every major industry. My question is, what are you learning? What are you learning from the CEOs?
1: Well, it's pretty interesting because it's not just CEOs who I talk to. But um, I do twenty keynotes a year. Some are as large as a thousand people in the audience, like for example, I did all the CTOs and technical officers at Cisco, or as small as seven board directors. Um, so, and the number of companies that I engage with and associations is pretty breathtaking. Everything from farming um, to investment companies. And so, uh, what I am learning is that the problem of the explosion in technology crosses every single industry. There is nothing that is untouched. So when we hear about, for example, the problems in agriculture um, that are being dealt with today, my guess is that the solutions aren't going to come from the farmers or from the farming companies, but rather from radical new approaches like 1.1, uh, which you're familiar with, Ron, where we have a robotic-enabled uh, you know, vertical farm that can produce as much as, a, as an entire family farm can in a 10,000 square, square foot facility. So uh, what I'm learning is that the, we've only, we're only starting to scratch the surface, but this lack of awareness is really an opportunity for a lot of investors and in a crisis for a lot of large corporations. Because the target for disruptive innovators is the large corporation. So th- they're going to get surprised. And you know investors who get involved on the other side of the world, on the disruptive side of the world, are really going to have an opportunity uh, to, to make some money.
0: I like the phrase you use where you call it being codect. Obviously, that didn't work out so well for them. Question I have for you, you know, like with some of these technologies, like you mentioned 1.1, which has a vertical farming and their automated, you know, AI and robotics, et cetera. Clearly, it's the future. The question, I guess, is, is it happening today? Is the risk basically how early are we? Is it happening today? Is it happening two years? Is it happening four years? Is that the major risk? Because it seems intuitively that why should anything be grown
1: outdoors when you can control the environment? Well, it's more than that. Like for example, would you like to have the entire history of the birth of the plant until it's harvested available at your fingertips? Um, how would you like to be able to uh, increase the nutrient level of food without having to, you know, so that it can address a specific issue you may be having health-wise? How would you like to order it up on Prime and have it delivered at uh, Whole Foods the next day, where there's no transit, no spoilage, no disease um, in any of the product? You know, So with 1.1, that technology is now producing food after two years of development um, with the startup. And we're being able to prove out the business model. My guess is commercial viability for that will start taking place within the next five five years. Uh, But there are other areas of technology development, like, for example, Robotique is another startup company, and MetaWave that will have products into the market as soon as uh, the end of next year. So the thing that has changed with this whole explosion in the curve is that we're actually getting the technology into the market a lot faster than ever before. And one of the reasons why uh, VCs are having such a problem with is because they can't keep up with it. Um, so they've kind of limited the areas in which they want to play, you know, to uh, make sure that companies have a certain risk profile before they're willing to take. It. It's ironic; they're almost becoming risk-averse. Rob, crazy. You know, I know you
0: sit on several different advisory boards. Um, I'm sure you get inundated with calls because people would want to have somebody like you, who's literally at the epicenter of Stanford, on their board. How do you determine? You know, with all the calls you get. How do you determine, okay, yes, I'll do this board or no, I'm not going to do this one in general?
1: Well, one of the things I'm looking for is technology versus market risk. Uh, Those are the two criteria that any investor needs to consider in early stage development. So is there a high technology risk? In other words, um, is it possible for the company to actually do what they say they can do from a technical feasibility point of view? Uh, And are they going to be obsoleted by some other technology that they don't know about that's already under development? In other words, have they picked the right technology? So once the technology risk is wrung out, if you feel that that is acceptable, then the issue becomes one of market risk, and then you have to evaluate their management team on that basis. So the way I think about it when I look at a company um, for an opportunity is just like an investor would look at it. I, I try to understand, you know, what what's the amount of technology risk. Uh, are they really current? Do they really understand what they're doing? What kind of talent do they have on board? Um, and then I also then look at the market risk piece of it to see what the proportion of that is. Some technologies are, are kind of um, 100% market oriented. Others are just the opposite. So you have to be really careful about how you think about it. Just out of curiosity, how many boards are you currently sitting on?
0: Eight. Got it. And then if, if you had to create like, wow, I would love to be on a board of a company that did X.
1: What's X? X is being able to grow revenue 10 times uh, from where it was, you know, within a very, very short period of time. And that sounds crazy. Um, so I tend to look at companies that are relatively early stage. Uh, I'm not looking at the General Motors board as an example of that. Uh, so, you know, from my point of view, uh, that's a completely different business model and completely different stage. So I, I look for early stage development or serving with VCs and investors uh, to help them with their own portfolio. Got it. And one of the questions I would have is that because you see a lot of these early stage
0: companies in general, why is there such a massive failure rate in startups?
1: Well, I think um, if it's it's massive relative to what you know, because the investment level is relatively small. And this sounds crazy, but in a corporate R and D situation, uh, as an example, at Microsoft when acquired Nokia. They ended up writing off $14 billion as a result of the failed acquisition of uh, that company. And the whole point was to acquire new technology to drive mobile solution. And instead of doing that, they literally took um, Microsoft Mobile and uh, put that onto the system and removed the Nokia name. And then their market share fell from 13 to almost zero in the process. So when you look at how money is being spent in, in the corporation, it is massive dollars that we're talking about relative to, you know, an investment like with 1.1 of 5 million, let's say, on at early stage. So you're placing a lot of small bets, um, and the key there is understanding how to become a card counter in a Las Vegas uh, casino, uh, where you can see, you know, uh, which companies have the right skill sets in order to be able to to win the bet. So I don't see it in the same light. I think that, um, and the technology investment dollar, dollar-wise has gone down to start a company, not up. Uh, So, in the last couple of years, it's been relatively easy for just about anybody to start a company and so you want that, uh, you know, a number of companies to fail. You got a lot more of them in process now because of that um, cost decline Uh, and that's one of the reasons why there's such a high failure rate. But I think what you have to look at is it from a dollar point of view and a market creation point of view to see what the valuations look like for companies like Uber. You know, uh, in the last year, a uh, couple of years, the top five companies are all tech companies that were created in the last 10 years, not the Fortune Group companies, you know, with the exception of Apple. So, I mean, it's really interesting, Ron, because the economics don't pan out uh, the way people think, uh, you know, when you're looking at this stuff. Well,
0: I mean, you're in, it's, it's its own world, right? I mean, you're, you're in, you're, it's very insular.
1: That's part of the problem. And what I'm trying to do is to uh, break down that insularity by bringing in, Uh, corporations. You know, this program, as as brain dead as it may have sounded when we first proposed it to Stanford, it seems obvious that they should do this, uh, is actually turning out to be a very innovative approach because they don't normally have corporate affiliate members hooking up with practical technology in the lab to monetize it. Normally, you write a paper, uh, the faculty member tries to figure out how to get it financed. There's no system in place um, that allows them to very quickly uh find out if they've got a really great concept or not and, then, and if so to get it funded that's what we're trying to do here
0: yeah and you know i know you've done a terrific job has it been a lot different than you anticipated i mean you've done a phenomenal job growing this program
1: well it's um yes and no um i've in my career i've dealt with some really interesting corporate cultures as you can imagine both in turnaround stage plus large companies like microsoft and and even thinking about how Gates tried to drive a new innovation model, there is a, a different culture. So it, it doesn't surprise me. Academia is exactly what you expect of it. It's not. Um, uh, it's not like business. It's not like commercial markets. What you have to do are find the commercially viable faculty and researchers at the at the university, and that that number is less than 20%. So you've got to look for um, the diamonds in the rough who have commercial experience. Who understand that because trying to deal with someone who doesn't is extremely non-productive. Now, when
0: you were at Microsoft, did you did
1: you work directly with Gates? I worked for Gary Flake, who worked for Gates. And Gary Flake was the CTO at um, that was brought in to the company. Um, I wanna say it is one of the search companies, I think it was Yahoo, actually. Um, and Gary's a fantastic talent. And I had direct interactions with Gates on several occasions um, uh, during the operations reviews. Some of that was kind of interesting because he was in his retirement stage, and and he, I think he, had a sense that the company really failed to um, take advantage of, you know, uh, its technology for, in mobility and some other areas, especially with the advent of the iPhone and how successful it was. So I think he felt felt a sense of uh, remorse almost because he um, hoped that the company would be um, able to continue its creation of new and capable technologies. And it didn't, really. I mean, it really failed in a number of different areas. I think Satya, who's now the new CEO of of Microsoft, is doing a really phenomenal job at addressing those issues with um, the way he's reorganized the company. Well, you know, I
0: could talk to you for hours about uh, this technology and how everything's getting disrupted. But if any of our listeners want to get a hold of you or wanted to contact you, what's the best way for them to reach you?
1: Well, simple. Just send me an email. Um, my uh, email address is steep at stanford.edu, S T E E P, and um, you know we go from there. Make sure that they reference the fact that they are part of this uh, broadcast that you're having, uh, so that I, I know who it is who's uh, contacting me, and then we'll be. Uh, you know, I'll take it from there. And do you, I guess the last question. I mean, do you have? You're on eight boards.
0: I mean, do you? What do you have bandwidth for a couple more boards if if the right opportunity came presented itself?
1: Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, I'm trying to always um, expand my horizons a bit. As you can probably tell, I'm, I'm what they used to call a high, high bandwidth person in uh, Silicon Valley parlance. But um, I get bored otherwise. And, uh, you know, so uh, anywhere I can add value is, of course, greatly appreciated.
0: Well, listen, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your being on here. Um, I'm thrilled to obviously be part of the program at Stanford. And just as important, I'm happy to call you friend now. Um, So you've been terrific to work with. And again, thank you for everything. And thank you for your time. Excellent. Thank you, Ron. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on Family Office World. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, rate it five stars and leave a review. Join us again next time for another episode of Family Office World. Thank you and have a great week.